growing up in Detroit on on the border of the largest Arab community in the world outside of the Middle East definitely informed my faith. I went to a predominantly white, very Polish Catholic school in uh, Detroit, Dearborn, if people aren't familiar. But Tyreman was that block that divided these two places. Um, most of the kids in my block were probably going to church. We weren't. My house wasn't like a church, go to church type <laughs> household. But I would have to walk past my Christian Chaldean uh, neighbors, my Muslim community. You could hear the call to prayer, literally, in my neighborhood. And you can still hear the church bell at the same time. <laughs> During Ramadan, you knew it was Ramadan because you were right across the street from Ramadan. So people were fasting. So faith was not just one thing. Uh, as a little girl, I saw it in a lot of different spaces. And I didn't, I wasn't forced to belong to any of them, which really was beautiful. Um, even at Wayne State University, which is a great school right in downtown Detroit, we had this intersection of all these different students with all these different um, belief systems. And it made for some of the, the greatest conversations and some of the strongest alignment with activism and, and friendships that I still have to this, this very day. But faith is not a word, and I need to say that. It is definitely something you do. And when you have true faith in whatever religion you pray to, whatever gets you there, whether it's, whether it's Yoruba or Judaism or Islam, whatever that way is, if you're a strong Christian, you know, if you're walking in faith, then the idea is you're treating people like better humans. You're being a better human. And that's, that's the point of it, right? It's to get to a higher ground. It's not to divide and it's not to judge. And I think Detroit is a, a perfect map for all these people to intersect and find each other. This is Intersections Detroit, Resilience and Hustle from the Heart of the D. Chapter eight, Faith. Every human being born is power. So it's a matter of enabling and awakening your power. I grew up in a neighborhood called Coney Gardens in Crans Woods, and I could literally walk for two miles in complete safety. People knew each other, they talked to each other. If I did something two miles away from my house, by the time I walked home, my mother had the news. So one of the most significant events of my early teenage years was the murder of four girls in a Birmingham church. The safe place to study the Word of God and some coward bombs and murders them. That kind of flipped a switch in me, made me an activist. It made me search for the truth. Why are we in this condition? And what I learned is that we were oppressed people, former slaves. As that understanding deepened and my faith grew, I came to understand that the oppressor is oppressed or in prison in much the same way that the oppressed is. Their physical position may be more privileged, but they are as much locked in to a worldview which is wrong as they impose on those who are oppressed. So we all got to get free together, and that's become my life's journey.
I'm Reverend Larry Simmons. I pastor Baber Memorial African Methodist Episcopal Church in Brightmoor, which is a neighborhood in Northwest Detroit, one of the poorest neighborhoods in North America. Jesus said, I have plans for you, plans for you to prosper, not to harm you, for a certain future. Every human being born is powered. It's a matter of enabling and awakening to your power. So I think Detroit is that beacon of hope for people all over the world. I fell in love with Brightmore because of the resilience and the power of the people who are here. They're incredibly poor. But you know the old saying that necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is just another way of saying poor. And so they create and invent solutions. They invent gardens because they don't have fresh food markets. We invent things and we don't wait because we're the poorest area around. Of course, we usually have been at the bottom of the totem pole. So if we didn't do it ourselves, it didn't get done. You can become Aretha Franklin. You can become Coleman Young. You can become Wade McCree, the Solicitor General of the United States in an era of, of segregation. These are stories of possibilities and hopes, and I think Detroit represents that. You have power within you right now. Use it. Take up your bed and walk. Back in the 60s and the 70s, churches were the anchors of this community of Southwest Detroit. And so that was where my parents uh, got involved. They would put us in uh, youth programs and uh, we would take trips. And I was always like the one that volunteered and helped people. I think that's where I started to recognize my own leadership, my activism and advocacy of helping other people.
I've been very blessed to be able to represent the whole city of Detroit, but mainly Southwest Detroit, and also champion my colleagues and other decision makers in the city of Detroit to say, how do we get better as a society to build things that other people from other countries could adapt to and be a little bit more involved. I came up in the era of the 70s where I was a rule breaker and a risk taker. And I got into a little bit of you know trouble. However, I think what helped me beat the barriers of the inner city and the barrio and really uh, helped me to achieve success was that I had an internal core in my home. We used to pray the rosary every day. We were very strict Catholic. So I remember like actually praying the rosary, you know, I'm 16 years old and sneaking out the back, actually going to a party. The police came and my mother thought I was in bed. It was just so dramatic for my whole family that everybody got involved. And, and here my whole family gathered around me and took me to St. Anne's Church the next day and asked me to ask to have repentance, you know. And I'm thinking, what the hell, you know, but I did it. I think about that all the time. My parents really thought that by taking me to church, to this, this Catholic church that I grew up in, that everything was gonna go away. You know, that, that the environment and, and all the barriers that I was dealing with as a 16 year old in the city of Detroit, as a minority woman, young woman coming up that was a rebel, that everything was gonna go away because they took me to church and I asked for penance. I always remember that and I still go to church because that, that is like where I find solace and peace. And it set the context of how a young lady that's a rebel, that's an advocate, a natural leader, that did a lot of out-of-the-box things that my family didn't approve of, really did grow up to be very spiritual. And it set the context of, I guess, who I was gonna be as an adult. I am Maria Salinas, I am a community organizer and a servant leader in the city of Detroit. When I first came here, it was a very different city than it is today. It's gone through a whole series of, of changes, not only with respect to the Jewish community, but in terms of the whole history of the city, which is well, well known. 
there is a uh, preeminent urban historian named Thomas Sugru, who is a native of Detroit, uh, who has written extensively about this. And of course, I, I witnessed the exodus of the Jewish community. It bothered me a lot. I belonged then to a synagogue named the Dat Shalom, now located in Farmington Hills, but then located about a half a block from where I currently live. It moved and I didn't. <laughs> I became increasingly committed to the city and very unhappy about what the Jewish community had done, despite, at least in my case, uh, a, a rabbi named Rabbi Siegel who urged his uh, congregants to stay and stay, and, and of course they left. Now, it wasn't only in 67, the exodus of the Jewish community began before that, even decades before that, but it was very gradual. The riot or rebellion, whatever you want to call it, of 1967 uh, clearly uh, accelerated that exodus. Uh, but I was committed to the university and to the city. I, I viewed the university as a kind of institution that was similar to the city colleges in New York, which had provided a, uh, a, an opportunity for higher education to my father and to many immigrants who had come to this country in the late 19th uh, and early 20th century. I do not consider myself to be a very observant Jew, although I am a reasonably observant Jew. And when my parents died in 1989, the Isaac Agri Downtown Synagogue was the only remaining synagogue in the city of Detroit and the only place I could go to say the uh, Kaddish prayer to mourn for my parents for 11 months, morning and afternoon. And because I had been brought up in a traditional home, I was uh, aware of uh, you know, the practices, the liturgical practices, and, and the way services were conducted. It kind of fell to my lot when the organized Jewish community was not really much interested in the downtown synagogue or the Jewish presence in the city of Detroit. It took to maintain it. I got some grants from foundations and so forth, enough to keep the lights on, at least uh, from about 2000 until about 2010 or 11. At that time, the younger people who now occupy leadership positions in the synagogue came into the city and became involved here. I'm Martin Herman. I am first-generation American, an academic, a, a professor emeritus uh, of humanities from Wayne State University. See, this is this is something that's often said responsibly by person. And so on. Sometimes we also read it, we read portions of it in English. We'll say, read this in English. Sometimes either or, or sometimes both. It, because if you're really interested in the history of the synagogue, that introductory. Uh, little brief history. It was a very difficult thing to do because no, there were no archives. I had to go around interviewing people and getting anecdotal information. I was uh, did not have accessible any. Uh, the, uh... So my dream is captured through a verse in the Bible, Zechariah 8, 4, and 5, that says, Once again, old men and women will be standing in the streets with canes in their hands, 
telling stories to one another and children will be playing in the streets. And it's an exciting picture to me because it's, it's a picture of freedom. It's a picture of people feeling safe and all the other great things that come with having a whole community. It's the work that has to go along with that, but it's what we strive for that, that all of this can happen. My name's Lisa Johannan. I'm the director of Central Detroit Christian CDC. Some of my childhood memories are living in a household of a lot of chaos and confusion, four brothers and sisters in a very small home. A lot of dysfunction, I would say. I was the person who was the responsible one. I would sometimes help my older sister do her homework. I would say where I've developed a family sense was really in going to church and really in having a youth group when I was in my teenage years, and that had a big impact on me, and still, still does today in terms of the work I'm doing. I think when I went off to college, I still didn't understand fully what I was going to be doing with my life as it related to young people in particular. I was in Chicago, and out my dorm window, I can see the Cabrini Green Housing Projects which don't exist anymore, but at that time were the second poorest area in the nation. And very volatile, very violent, and very attractional for me. You know, and I said, this, this is it. This is what I want to do. I really want to help disenfranchised people. I want to take this area and turn it upside down. I came back to Detroit in 1985 and started to say, you know, how can we make a difference here? And again, started on the premise of working with young people, saying how can we be more holistic in reaching people in our community? And that's when CDC started, so that we could not just deal with young people, but their families in the neighborhood. And then in that process, realizing we can't just work with people, we've got to change the system. You know, we've got to do the bricks and mortar work so that there's a transformed community besides transformed people we strive for that that all of this can happen. Another founding member right here. Bill. So Bill is another uh, guy from day one with us. Bill, Will. No, he is um, from Canadian. Canadian? Yeah. He's Canadian. Uh, he lives here? No. But, but, Willie. But you, Willie O'Ree. But, but that would be an interesting story to do. Uh, uh, to look him up on Google. Willie O'Ree.
my parents, they were very instrumental in helping to nurture my passion because a couple of things that they really instilled in us, and, and I have two brothers and one sister, was a passion for charity, for giving back to the community that was around us, not even just in our neighborhood, but also outside of our neighborhood. I didn't appreciate that as a kid back then, but I definitely appreciate it now. They were also intentional about exposing us to other people and other culture outside of our neighborhood. And I believe that that helped to kind of nurture and fuel my passion for culture and diversity. So my name is Shaysha Geronimo. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I grew up on Cheyenne Street off Puritan. I am a Christian, I am a wife, a mom, and an ambassador of reconciliation. So now I am leading a ministry called Facing Race, and we meet weekly and have some dialogue about some of the racial tensions that we're experiencing in our city as well as in our culture. How do we respond to that as Christians, as believers? But also, how do we deal with some of the internalized prejudices that we have on the inside too? The goal is to create a safe space to just be real and raw and honest and don't have to be politically correct. You could just say what you think with the hopes that we will get to a, a place of deeper understanding of one another and a deeper appreciation of the various cultures that are in the room. I even get excitement when people are crying and shouting at each other because I'm like, yes, now we're getting into the nitty gritty of what's going on. And so once we re recognize where the problem is, we can start working towards the solution. It just always does my heart good when I see someone who initially is in dislike of this people group, but because of the relationships that they start to build and the conversations they have in these groups, they, they begin to have a love and appreciation for that culture. My prayer is always that it won't be just this one moment, but that it would be something that would be so impactful that they would really change their lifestyles to really implement the principles that we teach. I'm Shafan Ahmed. I was born January 12, 1989, uh, in Detroit, Michigan. I'm a community organizer and activist. My family immigrated here from Bangladesh. I'm considered a first-generation immigrant. My identity didn't really become a thing until I was a bit older, when I'd say September 11th happened. But prior to that, it was just, I'm another kid on the block, I'm another kid in the neighborhood, whether you're black, white, Latino, Bangladeshi Arab. I just remember the the innovative ways we played our sports and things like that as kids and 
One of my closest friends, he's uh, since passed away a few years ago. His name was Mahmoud. I looked up to him a lot. His brother is closer to my age. Mahmoud is about a year older than me. But um, we challenge each other intellectually and um, athletically a lot. We talked about everything. I mean, we saw each other practically every day because we went to the same school, so our families and I, like, we carpooled together. His father was my Quran teacher, so I would see them on weekends, and he would teach me Quran with his own children. I still consider them family. I remember one of the last things he said. He messaged me on Facebook. I see a lot of the cool work you're doing in the community. I can't wait to come back to Michigan and, you know, do this again. And he told his mom the same thing, like, I want my youngest sister to have the childhood we had growing up. And that was what we kind of kept in mind. And I think that's what draws us back into the work we do in the community. It's just attaining that level of stability, that sense of community that was lost because of the traumatic experience from the recession. It's not a glorious job. No one wants to do this stuff. It's just, this is an issue my friend or my neighbor or this person that I don't even know is facing. How do we solve it? What system helped create this? Why are there no solutions for this? So that's how I look at it. I think we need to get it done. So I step up to the plate and do it.
um, sitting here on the porch of the First Congressional Church, which is also the site of uh, one of the Underground Railroad stops. It's definitely a place that I, I have a connection with. Growing up in a place where people are longing for freedom and it seems to be hidden from us. The, the, the site is in the basement of this church. Um, like trying to be someone that can be a guide to that space because often it's right there and we can't see it. My name's Dewan Dandridge. So today I have the privilege and responsibility of working for an amazing nonprofit organization in the city of Detroit that's done some amazing work. I'm a proud, lifelong Detroiter, father, husband of one beautiful wife. My grandfather on my mom's side, that's where the name Dandridge comes from. The Dandridge family members were slaves on the plantations of George Washington's wife's father. So George Washington's father-in-law, his name was Dandridge. They owned my family. So, you know, when you ask me to be a proud American, my story's a little bit different. So when I hear of George Washington and him being a hero to most, I kind of view him in a different light. Me and my wife opted to choose a last name for our family. Uh, that last name is Uhuru. We want to pass a name on to our children that they'd be proud of. And Uhuru actually means freedom. So we were very intentional about like letting them know when you call them by last name, you're speaking freedom to them. Once you get to taste freedom and breathe air as a free person, it feels so good and it's so liberating that you just want somebody else to experience it with you. That's what sent me on a path to go back and share the freedom experience with other people. I spent a lot of time early on trying to figure out a way how to target young men that had you know, made some bad decisions. My first huge initiative was I turned a real estate investment property into um, a transitional housing for young men that wanted to stop selling drugs. And we would take them in and teach them a trade, have daily Bible study and prayer with them, and just try to build a community around them that would show them that they had other options that they may not have known were even there. As we sit here on the porch of the First Congressional Church, the site of the Underground Railroad is um, trying to be someone that can be a guide to go back and share the freedom experience with other people. You have power within you right now. Use it. Take up your bed and walk. We've got to do the work so that there's a transformed community besides transformed people. Besides transformed people.
Intersections Detroit is produced by LaToya Cross and the D for the Human Atlas and Rethink Audio. The executive producer and sound designer is Sarah Miles. Original music by Brian Eno, Ife Bess, and Marcus Elliott. Concept and interviews conducted by Marcus Lyon and his Human Atlas team. That's Camilla Pastorelli and Joe Briggs Price. Support for Intersections and the Human Atlas comes from the Kresge Foundation, working to expand opportunities in America's cities through grant-making and social investing. For more information, go to kresge.org. Special thanks to all iDetroiters, the people of our city. Your resilience, fire, and voice is what makes this work possible. My name is Jessica Care Moore. See you back here next week when you follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find great stories. Peace.